You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Okay, so we are here today with Dr. Simon Mabun from Lancaster University, a lecturer in international relations, but more broadly an expert on the MENA region and the Gulf in particular. So today we can talk about your latest book. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Sure. So my latest book is called Houses Built on Sand, and it's a book that is coming out with Manchester University Press in the UK and Oxford University Press internationally, um, hopefully within the next year or so. It's a book that uses the concept of sovereignty to understand and to engage with the reasons for and behind the Arab uprisings of 2011. And I guess the main argument is that to understand why people took to the streets in 2011, we have to place those uh, those protest movements and the uprisings themselves within broader uh, protest movements that that can be traced back to the formation of states and the sort of the colonial legacy across the Middle East. So post Ottoman Empire, um, post League of Nations, Sykes-Picot Treaty of uh, Lausanne, San Remo Treaty of Sèvres, all of that. And since that point, political projects have started to emerge across the region that have been, by their very nature, exclusionary, because all political projects are exclusionary. To have a political project, you have to have a a membership body. And by that, you have to have, in contrast, a a group of people that are not members. Mm -hmm. So the book essentially traces the the state-building projects across the region, and it does that by by using different concepts or different understandings of sovereignty, predominantly grounded in the work of Giorgio Agamben, but also drawing a little bit on Hannah Arendt and, uh, and Max Weber to say that look, if you want to understand protest movements today, you have to look at the range of different contingent factors that have shaped protest movements over time. And so with that in mind, I, I have chapters that look at the role of religion within political systems, political systems themselves, um, urban environments as sort of a, a, a spectacle, but also a space of normality through which all types of identities and ideologies interact, some in a mundane way, some in an explosive manner. And then I look at the economic um, reasons that have led to marginalisation, historic protest movements, and then the protest movements in 2011 themselves. But then from that, I also argue that we can understand how um, events in Syria, Bahrain, Yemen, Iraq have escalated because states themselves have responded to the protests in particular ways that have facilitated and extrapolated and increased these processes of marginalization. So resulting in the, the deepening and entrenchment of sectarian divisions and the sort of the escalation of, of sectarian violent proxy conflicts. And that obviously has an impact across the, the whole Mid, uh, MENA Middle Eastern landscape because of the spread of identities and the nature of type of constructed uh, identities. So obviously the time is ripe for sure. this book to come out because like, in order to understand the context of the post-2011 yeah. uprisings, what you're proposing is essentially a conceptual toolkit. Sure. To do this yeah. but once we have understood that once mm-hmm. we have unpacked all the issues that you've spoken about i guess my question is where to next how do we make sure that this doesn't keep happening well 
I guess that question comes loaded with a number of issues in the another sense book. that, well, potentially another <laughs> book. But you, you say, how can we make sure that? How can we make sure that this doesn't keep happening? And I guess that presupposes that mm. we, being sort of Western academics, have a role to play in this. And um, in some ways, I'd argue that we do, and I'll get onto that in a minute. But I think what it tries to do is just offer. A, a, an intellectual toolkit for understanding the creation of such identities and the creation of certain narratives that, that can be divisive and destructive. So hopefully just by shedding light and opening things up for, for broader and deeper critical engagement, it, it serves an important role in that sense. But one of the other themes that I've started to engage with across the book is that uh, through um, through the construction of such narratives and such exclusions, things have taken on an increasingly um, internationalised perspective, particularly playing out post the Arab uprisings along political lines. So if you look at events in Syria, for instance, there's been widespread condemnation of the behaviour of Bashar al-Assad and the Syrian regime. But then, among certain groups of people, there's been a real reticence to, to speak out against what Assad's been doing. And the Syrian conflict, I think, is really interesting in the sense because you have um, leftist socialists who are sort of still espousing the revolutionary zeal and the anti-imperialist agendas of the Assad regime. And so, uh, for instance, someone like Jeremy Corbyn, a, a leftist political leader, has not been that critical of the, the humanitarian tragedy that is going on in Syria and the extent to which... Um, the Syrian president Bashar al-Assad has killed 90% of the 520,000 people that have been killed. So there's a, there's a real issue that's playing out here, and a real intellectual issue, because that has also fed into the cultivation of certain narratives, the sense that Assad himself is fighting against Islamic extremists, so uh, there has been this sense that an intellectual narrative has been created that says Assad is fighting as part of a war on terror, and that Assad is preferable to a, a Syria run by Daesh or Al-Qaeda. And so that narrative, although not necessarily intentionally or instrumentally, has created a sense of complicity in justifying and legitimizing the Assad regime's treatment of people in Syria. And I think that that type of argument is really important and it's really dangerous because so many people, more and more academics, are buying into this and buying into conspiracy theories that are saying that, well, the Assad regime is actually um, participating in a very important arena within the war on terror. But in doing that, it's, it's sort of dehumanising and delegitimizing political protest across Syria and creating the conditions where uh, Assad is able to get away with killing hundreds of thousands of people. So when you're asking what it can do, hopefully it sheds light on the construction of that type of narrative to say, um, say enough, we cannot be complicit in this anymore, that you have to look historically at what's been happening, at how regimes have responded to protest in the past. And the book does that, it traces history of protest in a number of different states. And it says this is a, a repeated tool of repression, mm. that states routinely repeat, repress, violently crush um, protesters and they seek to frame it in particular ways that would legitimise their action and that's what we're seeing here. The Assad regime has bought into the narrative of the war on terror, much like 
um, the Israeli state with Benjamin Netanyahu and Ariel Sharon placing the struggle against Palestinians as part of the war on terror to justify and legitimise their actions. And this is a very dangerous narrative that has to stop. Right, that's great. Thank you, Simon. Looking forward to reading it. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch our seminars and interviews.